Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. I am Alex, and I am happy to be here. And uh, June 26th, just about a week and a half ago, was our 37th anniversary as a church. June 26th. So that's just, it's amazing. And I'm thinking, Lord, am I still here, really? There have been so many changes, so many different things have happened throughout the years. And uh, it's amazing that God's faithfulness and God's strength and God's grace has just continued to, to fill Pam and I and the staff here and, and a lot of you. I mean, Gordy and Virginia Lindstrom were here on day one back in June of 1982. So I just want you to know that uh, no matter how many changes we go through, God is the same, just like Adrian said. I, I want to talk to you this morning about uh, something that we all go through. It's called change, navigating change. And... Um, you know, you may have confronted something recently that's really thrown you for a loop. You know, if, uh, if you've been through a divorce in the past, I mean, that will just change your world. If you get married, that'll change your world. If you have your first baby or your third baby, or you get a new job or you lose a job, I mean, there are all kinds of traumatic events that can absolutely disorient us and cause us to just kind of go, I don't know what to do next. But it's inevitable living life on planet Earth, don't you think? Yes. Yeah, change is going to happen. And thankfully, God is gracious. He doesn't like do one traumatic thing after another, after another, after another. He tends to space them out pretty nicely. I appreciate that. But the fact is they do come and they will come again. And one of the things we have to learn is that um, navigating change successfully requires um, a few key elements. This is a picture of Lewis and Clark. Uh, back in 1802, they were commissioned by Thomas Jefferson to see if they could find a way to get from the East Coast to the West Coast. Well, they knew they could get from the East Coast to St. Louis, Missouri, so they started there. And they made the assumption that there would be some kind of waterway all the way to the Pacific Coast. And so they went on this adventure, and what they confronted along the way completely shocked and surprised and amazed them. They, they met some barriers they did not expect, they did not see coming, they had no training in, they had no way of getting past until they learned to adapt. So I want to talk about uh, learning to adapt to those new frontiers that God's going to be bringing you and I through. So we'll take a look, first of all, by studying a couple of Bible characters. Uh, you know, Abraham was one of the first, foremost frontiersmen in the Bible, and one of the things that he had to capture, that you and I need to capture as well, is that we have to realize that the world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. That's a pretty interesting observation. Because we tend to think, whenever we confront something difficult or new, we can kind of pull from our old tool bag, and things that worked in the past will probably work again in the future. But the fact is, when you're confronted with something dramatically different, you have to accept the fact that, wait, the world in front of me is nothing like the world behind me. Think about what Abraham encountered. Genesis 12 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, that's a simple statement. It's the beginning of Abraham's story, the beginning of his journey. But the fact is, he was leaving everything behind. He says, go from your country, his national identity. 
Go from your people, his race, his creed, his color, the people that he had lived and been born and raised in all his life. Your father's household, the aunts, the uncles, the servants, the buddies down the street, the friends, everything behind. And we kind of read that story like, oh, Abraham just had a great adventure, a great camping trip. He just went out and, wow, God showed him things, and he just kind of knew what to do, and he just sort of had a great adventure after another after another. No, the truth is, nothing ahead of him was similar to what was behind him. That's a radical shift he had to make in order to get into the future successfully, to become the man God wanted him to be. So if you and I are confronting something right now, or if we do again in the future, and uh, you're becoming disoriented, and you're just kind of like someone pulled the rug out from under you, this is just a, I didn't prepare for this. I've never been here before. The first thing you and I have to do is accept the fact that it's different. And God is not shocked, and God is not out of control, and God is not out of ideas. But you and I have to be able and willing to say, I can't pull the tools out of my tool bag that worked in the past. Maybe God has something brand new for me. So back to Lewis and Clark. Um, they were river rats, literally. They were uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark loved canoeing. They loved the river, and they had navigated all over the early parts of America, all over the rivers, and they were some of the best in their trade. And so that's why Jefferson chose them and said, if anybody can find that Northwest Passage across the continent, it's you guys. And so what they did is they began paddling. Their team of canoers and their expedition went swimmingly all the way up the Missouri River. And they're, in their mind, they were thinking, once we get to the source of the Missouri River, we're pretty sure that we'll have to carry our canoes across this mild hill. And then on the other side, the Columbia will begin. We'll find the mighty Columbia, and off we'll go to the Pacific Ocean. You see, up until then, the only way to explore the Pacific side of the USA was to sail all the way around South America. Panama Canal had not been built yet. All the way around South America, all the way up the Pacific side of South America, and then to the west coast of Oregon. And explorers had been doing that for years. They knew Oregon was there. They saw the Columbia. They knew Canada was there. They knew Washington was there. California was still owned by Mexico. So they had seen the U.S. from the Pacific side, and they'd seen the U.S. from the Atlantic side, but they had never found a pathway across to connect the two. So Lewis and Clark are thinking, we can paddle our way over. We'll carry, yeah, probably have a short carry in between. But something happened on the way to the New World. There actually was no Northwest Passage that was a waterway, like they had assumed. It didn't exist. It was a myth. Some of those brilliant minds, the most entrepreneurial spirits, the, the strongest and boldest adventurers had made this assumption that that's the way it would be, just mild hill, then down, and back into the river we go. What they confronted at Lemhi Pass border of Idaho and Montana on the Continental Divide. They had reached the mouth of Missouri. They got into the tributary creeks and climbed up one side of the Continental Divide, which happens to be kind of a mild slope. It's not like the west side where it drops off this way. They got to the top, and in his journal, Meriwether Lewis writes, these are the most heinous mountains I've ever seen in my life, and they go on forever. 
Because that's how it is. And from the continental divide westward, it's just mountain, bitter roots, mountain after mountain. Then you got the Cascades, I mean, it's just mountain, 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 all the way. He became very, very discouraged. And they began to realize they hadn't planned for this. This is not what we thought it would be like. What was interesting at that point was Meriwether writes in his journal, until I'm absolutely convinced we can't go according to plan, I'm going to believe what I've always believed. There has got to be a way. He's still thinking there's going to be a river somewhere. The problem was um, there wasn't. He was going to require some absolutely brand new, never before thought of way to get to the Pacific Ocean. This is where a precious young Native American woman comes into play. Her name was Sacagawea. And a lot of you may not know the story of Sacagawea. It's not that she just guided them through trails. She confronted them with something they weren't ready for. She said, guys, river rats, experts on the water, you got to sell your canoes and you got to buy horses. And they're like, horses? No way, we're not horsemen, we're canoesmen. She said, no, there's no way. There's no other way you're going to get across. They had to completely release their preconceived ideas of how to navigate the future and adapt a brand new one. This is exactly what Abraham had to do. It's exactly what you and I have to do. When we come to those traumatic moments in life, life-changing moments, we're hanging on a cliff and we're looking down into a valley we've never experienced before, an experience we've never had before, brand new territory. I mean, it could be like getting married. That's new territory. Anybody agree with that? Nothing like you thought, right? It's still good, but different. Losing a loved one, losing a job, losing a spouse, losing a child. We have to expect, accept the fact that God has brand new things to show us. And the transformation that he wants to do in us is the purpose. He wants us to change. So we'll be willing to accept something new so that we can grow in trusting him even more and actually adapt new skills to navigate the future that we never had before. If you're ready for a change, if there's something that's disoriented you and uh, thrown you for a loop, we have to embrace the adventure ahead. In fact, one writer put it this way. He said, um, it's adventure or die. We have to understand that we can't just keep doing the same old, same old, and expect to be successful in what God's called us to in the future. It's going to be different. It's going to be hard. And guess what? There will be loss. Lewis and Clark had to lose their confidence in their skills, their experience, their expertise, everything they knew about navigating rivers out the window. And they had to learn from this Native American girl. That's a little humbling. So if you and I are willing to embrace the fact that adventure is required, a spirit of adventure is required for us to navigate the future, we have to embrace the fact that there will be anxious moments, frightening moments, brand new, scary moments. If we're willing to do that, I believe that's when the revelation of God begins to come. Because sometimes God will speak out of the heavens and give you an aha moment to help you get through the next season of life, but other times he won't. A lot of times, he's going to use other people. You know, there's a saying, um, you got to think outside the box. you got to think outside the box. You know, that's how you need to get through this. Well, here's the problem. You're in the box. How do you think outside the box you're in? You can't. There's no way. 
What God often does, if it's not by direct revelation, he'll often bring somebody in a different box and say, how about looking at it this way? I never could have thought of that. Never imagined that for one minute. Is that even possible? Somebody with different experience, usually somebody younger, maybe not as much of an expert as you, like Sacagawea, outside your circle of relationships, different race, different background, different economic and education background. They had to be open. These men had to be open to this woman's input in order to navigate the future. So that's on a personal level. Let me, let me since this is family day, Sunday is our kind of family business day, let me just remind you that we as a church family are called, and we have a mission here in the neighborhood. We have a mission. And accomplishing that mission means reaching people that don't know Jesus or reaching people, those who do, and bringing them back into fellowship. Look around. A lot of empty seats. Look around. A lot of gray hair. Guess what? We're kind of at the top of the Continental Divide looking over the other side and going, we've been doing everything we know. We've been having community outreaches to, to the gills. I mean, we had an awesome out-of-school barbecue. If you were there, it was awesome. I mean, at least 100, maybe 150 people came, mostly not from RCC. It was awesome. We had a great teacher's luncheon over at Northwood. We had great outreaches all year round. Game nights here, bringing friends and family. But look, there's still only a handful of us here. Is that bad? I don't know. I don't think it's bad. I love you guys. I love what I do. But here's one thing I do know is we've tried everything we know. And we're facing a future that's different than the past. When we started the church in the 80s, going to church was a thing to do. Everybody went to church, man. It was easy to collect people, families, kids. Man, our nursery was busting out Sunday school. We had one-third of our population, about 400 people every Sunday. One-third were children. You know, another quarter were teens, and then the rest were young adults. I mean, it was just cooking. It was like it didn't take any effort at all. But we're facing a season right now. It's kind of like, man, Lord never been here before. And one of the best things you and I can say at times like this, whether personal or church-wide, is I don't know. I don't know what to do. I need someone outside my box to speak into my life. Or you need to have someone outside your box speak into your life. And we need to begin to say, Father, there is a way forward, man. There is a way forward. There may be no mythical North, Northwest Passage, but there is a way forward. And you have it. And we are open to accepting the fact that what's worked in the past, speaking of the past, we had rock and worship this morning, didn't we? That used to be all it took, man. You have a band like this, and people would just come, and that's, it always blows my mind that there's not a thousand people here just for that reason only. But that's the past. We have to say, Lord, what do you have for us in the future? And so I want to just charge you as the body of Christ at RCC to pray. Just be praying, thinking, and uh, hang out with people outside your box and get input and ideas. They'll probably be different from you. They'll probably be younger than you. And let's hear what the Lord has to say. Here's another observation we can make when we look at another man who is in a very, very big transition in his life named Moses. He learned that what's worked in the past is now completely out of date. So here's the story. A little long, but you'll get the gist. Exodus 2, 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. 
looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, I just want to stop there and make an observation. Apparently, Moses feels like he's called. Apparently, I'm in charge of doing something about this inequity that I'm observing. I've, I've, I've just got this passion to fix things, okay? So that's just like, we don't even know where that came from. He hasn't been called of God yet. All, all we know is that he grew up. But he's got this fire burning in his heart. He's going to fix stuff and, and make things right, okay? So he kills somebody to make that happen. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Uh-oh. God's favor is not upon him. So now he's afraid. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well for about 40 years. What he thought and was passionate about and what he just sensed he needed to do was to help his fellow Israelites. Nothing wrong with that. And then when the Israelites were conflicted with one another, he was going to help settle. He was going to kind of be their judge, their arbiter. He just kind of had this internal drive to, to fix things and make peace and, and get the oppressive regime off the backs of the Jews. That was just kind of this stirring that he had from birth, I'm sure. We don't know that he's really heard from God yet. I'm sure he had to some degree, but we don't know that for sure. But for 40 years, Moses had to recognize that his internal drive, you might call it his gifts, weren't really what God needed or wanted. They were completely out of date. Killing your opponent, presuming you're going to settle differences just because you want to and you're good at it, out of date, man. He's going to have to have something brand new beginning in his life. And it would, for some reason, we don't know why, take 40 years to learn it. But it wouldn't be like what he did naturally or what he did before. We've all been trained at navigating things. We've all had experiences that were very effective, worked really well. But what God has in front of us, out the window. It's kind of like, I was talking to a friend the other day, and, and we were remembering old typewriters. And uh, we remember the first computer typewriter. You know what it's called? It's called the Selectric. You could type your sentence and have a little baby screen right here, only about a paragraph's worth. And then it wouldn't type, so you could proofread it before, until you hit the button. Then it would type. It's like, oh, oh, it's so awesome, man. It's just such a wonderful, amazing, miraculous thing. It is so out of date now. It's like, that's just so, <laughs> really? I mean, now you could probably type a holograph and make it appear or something. It's just out of date. Uh, there's this great movie. I don't know if you are into movies, but I like movies. And Moneyball, Brad Pitt, remember that movie, if you've seen it? Moneyball is a, a story about Billy Bean. Billy Bean is a general manager of the Oakland Athletics. And uh, he was hired when the previous general man manager uh, was retired. He was hired, and the owner of the team said, Billy, what I need you to do is slash our budget, man. We're paying way too much for these players. They're way too expensive. What I want you to do is I want you to get the cheapest players you can. I want you to scout all of the minor leagues. I want you to find whoever you can and bring in and hire every position at the lowest possible salary you can. And I want a winning baseball team small order. 
And so what he began to do is um, he began looking at minor league players and asking the question, what is it that makes these guys great or that gives them great potential to become great? If I can catch them early and cheaply enough now and they actually become great players, I've accomplished my mission. So he went to his scouting team, his staff. He said, he said guys, guys, you've been doing this for a long time. How do we find those players? How do we find those players? And of course, the highly paid experts recommended do what we've always done. Just keep doing the same old thing. And Billy Bean said, no, that's not going to work. Now, keep in mind, Billy Bean had never made it to the majors. He was a player himself. He was pretty good. Minor leaguer all his life. So he was always one of those guys. He said, we're not doing that. And so he, he devised this thing called sabermetrics. Sabermetrics is simply, just to kind of distill it down, a way of measuring a baseball player's performance, and it all boils down to on-base percentage. Saying, we don't care how you get there, whether you walk, whether you hit the ball, whether you get hit by a pitch. If you have a high on-base percentage, that's going to be the one metric that we use. And so they went out scouting for all these young, unknown players and put together this team. And by 2006, he began back in 99, by 2006, the Oakland Athletics had the 24th lowest salary out of 30 teams and the fifth best winning percentage. It's unbelievable. Why? Because he said experts, staff, scouts, we're not doing it the old way. We're doing it the new way. And even now today, the Oakland Athletics are doing really well because they were the one who actually developed the whole idea of analytics, and now all the teams are using it. Analytics, this is how you find players, this is how you hire players, and here's the ones that you keep. I, I want us to, again, recognize that navigating change means that we have to not only be open to new ideas, people outside of our box, not only that we have to let go of the past, but we have to recognize that even the areas of expertise that we have may not be sufficient to navigate what's next. And this is where revelation from God, openness and humility before others, asking for help, getting input, is absolutely essential. Adventure or die. But before we do that, we have to accept and embrace the fact that I'm not really that good at this. I don't really know the answer. Because we're not going to be open and hungry for new things if we still think, well, we kind of got, got this tool in my back pocket. You know, that'll always work. It's my go-to no matter what. There are things we're going to have to humble ourselves and get over and get rid of and just say, Lord, I need something new from you and I need something from your people. I need you to show me what it is. We as a church, in the same way, not just personally, but as a church body, we need to say, okay, Kind of like Moses. Uh, what worked in the past isn't going to work in the future. And so, again, I just want to call out to you. Would you pray with me? And would you, um, don't bombard me with ideas. That's not what it is. I, I don't need you to tell me what the church down the street did and it really worked for them. I don't want you to go online and say, ah, da, 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 da. that's not what I'm talking about. No, there needs to be some time of quiet reflection and really serious prayer, and, and letting maybe some of the, um, I'm just going to say the young people, just say, yeah, no. You know what we've been doing? Yeah, no. It's just, uh, mm -mm. it's kind of like when we revamped the sanctuary, remember? I don't know if you know, but we had brass chandeliers. 
They looked like upside-down spider bodies. They were whew, kind of creepy now that I think about it. And, and the carpet was teal, and the walls were peach. It was like, oh, yeah, and behind the barnwood, there's now, there was oak. It's like, oh, baby, 82, it was the happening thing. And it took a, a team of people under 40 to convince me to let them just decide what to do next. That was cool. They didn't just throw ideas for Alex to chew on and decide on. I just threw them the whole shooting match. I said, just take it from here. Go. And I'm telling you, I think it's unbelievable. Don't you? Yeah. yeah. So I, I just want us as a church to be praying and, and just have kind of a different take on how we do things. And some of us have to let go of our preferences. We just have to let go of that and say, you know, I, I didn't even bring my Bible today. You know, two weeks ago I just decided to stop bringing my Bible to church. Sorry, it just gets in the way. You know, I'm using PowerPoint. But we've got to let that go. If that's offensive to you, I know it's not offensive to anybody, but it bugs some people. Just let it go. We're all using devices nowadays. It's okay. So we need to find out what is it, God, that we can let go of and what do we need to free up our hands for to embrace in the future. Here's a uh, third lesson we have to learn to navigate change. We have to recognize the geography of hope must give way to the geography of reality. I put hope in quotes because those are those things we hope for, but they were never based in reality. They're just kind of like, I sure hope it works out. I sure hope it comes out like this. But it was just a kind of a wishful thinking kind of thing. That happened to David. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. Okay, so if you don't know the story, Saul is king. David is one of his main uh, commanders of his army. He's also a musician. He also spends a lot of time in Saul's palace playing music to drive away evil spirits. So Saul appreciates David. And now he's throwing a party and all the ladies are dancing and playing music and singing and they're... Saul's thinking it's all about him. The story goes on. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. I bet that was a wake-up call for David. Yeah. Just a bit, you know? Because keep in mind, he had already been anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel and said, this is Israel's next king. Hope comes alive. He's not kind of dreaming about his future. He's having success with the giant named Goliath. He's becoming a commander of Saul's army. He's got a private access to the king. I mean, he's, hope is just dancing in his head. Suddenly, he sees a spear <laughs> flying through the air right at him, and he dives out of the way. Happened twice. You see, hope had to give way to reality. The reality was he was he was partnering with a jealous man who literally was out to kill him. That was the reality David had to face. Talk about a paradigm shift. No longer is it like, woohoo, I'm the next king, baby. Come on, let the transition begin. No, it's like, I don't know if that's ever even going to happen. I could be dead by the time Saul has finished ruling Israel. 
complete loss of that dream. Reality sometimes is a, it, it, it's a hard taskmaster because um, sometimes God allows us to walk into things that we're just kind of going, this is not only not fun, it's not even fair. This is not right. I don't deserve this. This is just, it, I don't know about you, but I, there have been times I've been ripped off financially by unscrupulous bankers. I, when I was young, bought a car on time. And because I was young, I was only 18 years old, I didn't know that when you open a new bank account, even though the bank has the same name, your money doesn't automatically transfer over. I thought it did. So I started writing checks out of my new account, and there was no money in there. It was all still in the old bank. And uh, I woke up one morning, and my car was gone. It had been towed away, and they repossessed it. And they never wrote me a letter, never warned me, didn't ping me in any way, shape, or form. And I went down and talked to him, and I was so intimidated by the whole situation. I, I just said, that's not right. You should give me my car back. Sorry, you can't have it back. And I just walked out with my head down. Completely unscrupulous, wrong behavior. They took my car back and just sold it again to another dumb 18-year-old. So those kind of things happen. It's not fun. It's not even fair. God's going to allow us to encounter things that are absolutely difficult. Reality can be a very hard taskmaster. But it's one of the things that God seems to be okay with. Why? Because he's good and he's smart. And we can trust him. But we have to be willing to give up those false hopes or those only if dreams, like if only this would happen, then I would be better off. Then I would get that job. Then I would take care of that business. We have to get rid of those and just say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I don't know what to do, but I'm willing to face reality and just say, okay, this is hard. Never been here before, but there is a way. When Lewis and Clark hit the ridge of the Rocky Mountains on the Continental Divide, they didn't say there's no way over this pass. They just said it's going to be a different way than we thought. They didn't just give up and walk back. I mean, they, they saw mountains for miles. Literally, from the Rocky Mountains all the way past through Idaho and all the way to the Cascades and everything else. I mean, it's just nothing but mountains. But one of the things that Meriwether Lewis put in his journal was, we will go on. That was it. Had no idea Sacagawea would come along, provide horses, had no idea how it was going to happen, but he said, we must go on. That was it. To know that you and I learn our survival skills by about the age of two. When you and I are in a tough spot and reality hits and it's like super difficult, literally, observers have said by age two, we have learned our go-to skills to survive whatever attack or trauma or danger or conflict is coming at us. So, and there's generally like four different ways people respond to those kind of onslaughts. One way is uh, you conquer, you overpower, you overcome. And some of us have that. That's our survival skill. When things get tough, we get loud and nasty. The next one is, when conflict comes, we talk our way out of it. We're just great talkers, man. We just talk our way up and down and around and around and around and around. And, around and suddenly, we either wear those people out or we convince them we're right, and it goes away. There are others who, um, when conflict comes, they just roll over and play dead until the storm passes over. And the stormy situation or the person is just kind of like when just gets bored staring at a dead person and moves on. It's an effective survival skill. Another kind of people will, uh, they will just study and analyze and research and get all their facts lined up, have catalogs and dictionaries of proof that they're right. 
And they'll just stay on it and stay on it and stay on it out of convincing argument. So all of us have already developed some kind of survival skill like that. But none of those are sufficient to accomplish what God's called us to accomplish. It's going to take something from his hand, from his heart, from his mind, his imagination in order to get us through that difficult time. And the sooner we accept reality, the sooner that revelation will come. The same is true for churches. It's not just RCC. Churches across the country, except for the mega churches, are all shrinking. It's just a generational thing. You know, most of us were raised at least in a semi-Christian household and previously definitely Christian households in America. But every generation that, that comes by, the, the parenting and the, the passion for Christ that's passed on to the children diminishes. And that's, that's part of what we're experiencing. And with a few exceptions, like uh, Mars Hill just had a great run at reaching young men. For, for many years, and uh, aside from the problems they may have had there, um, they found something. God did something brand new, and I'm thrilled about it. There are a lot of healthy young men Christians that never would have gotten saved had that move not taken place, but, but that was an exception. That's not happening all across the, the country. So we need to say, Lord, we're going to just start dealing with the geography of reality right here. We are not going to be a church that just sort of all gets old and dies off and shuts its doors. RCC is going to last until Jesus comes. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Not only am I committed to it, but I'm convinced of it because I think that's what God has told me. But we're going to have to say, Lord, how do we navigate forward as a church? Again, I don't want an onslaught of ideas. I want quiet reflection, and I want some personal transformation. I want God to change each one of us individually and saying, yeah, what, what can be different about us, about me, about how we do our community, how we do our, our neighborhood, how we do everything from serving to reaching our neighbors? Well, if you're a believer this morning, I want to um, just say you have a chance to, perhaps you're encountering something right now that's like whew, completely over your head, blew you away, didn't see that coming. And uh, maybe today is the day where you need to respond to the Lord and just say, yeah, I need to let go of my hope and face reality. I need to accept the fact that what's behind me is nothing like what's ahead, and I'm just going to start there. I have no idea what to do next. But just acknowledging the need. I believe God is going to begin a work in you to prepare you for the future. And if you're watching online, I want to uh, say, if you're not a believer, one of the greatest changes that will occur in your life when you accept Jesus is, um, I'll tell you, nothing behind you looks like what's ahead of you. Living for yourself, by yourself, without God in your life is going to absolutely turn into something you've never expected or experienced before. The presence of God, the joy of God, living for others, knowing you're going to heaven when you die. There is nothing like that. But you've got to be willing to give up the past and embrace the future, even though you don't know what it looks like. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who sees the future right now. And you're not intimidated, and you're not out of ideas. We thank you, Lord God, that we can trust you by throwing our lives into your hands. So, Father, would you give us courage right now to acknowledge that some of us just need to accept some new things we've just discovered about our future that we don't like, 
we're not familiar with, seem overwhelming, disorienting, and frightening. But Lord, we're willing to adventure with you. Would you give us the courage to say yes to our future, Lord, regardless of how familiar it seems? If that's you, would you raise your hand if there's something that you want to respond to and say, yes, Lord, there is a place for me to acknowledge that I'm ready for what's next. Good, good, yes, good. Bless you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, would you give my brothers and sisters here and online as well um, an immediate sign that you heard their prayer? Would you just show them something, Lord? As they keep their eyes and ears open and watch for you to move, Lord, would you just bring a sign that says, yes, I heard you, and you can trust me. It's going to be good. And Father, for anyone who's listening this morning who has never met you before and has been afraid to say yes to you because that whole idea of surrender just sounds so ominous, that they'll lose control of their lives or they'll become someone they didn't want to become, would you just Remove all of those fears and let them remember that, Jesus, you said you came to give us abundant life, eternal life, that the fullness of your presence would be ours forevermore, that you would conquer death for us, and that nothing could stand between us and your love. Would you give them the confidence and courage right now to say, yes, Jesus, I say yes to you. I surrender my life to you. And Lord, we thank you and look forward to seeing those people in heaven if we never see them in person. In Jesus' name, and the church said? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, kind of exciting, but kind of scary. It's okay to be scared. You know, that's just part of life, right? Just do it together. Let's be scared together. Let's hold each other up. God bless you. See you next Sunday.